0: Hello listeners, glad to meet you with you again. We will now begin Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries' Unity in Christ program. For first-time listeners, my name is Christine Kim, and I am the host of this program, I sincerely hope all of our listeners felt they spent the past week restored to their first love, their love for Christ. During last week's broadcast, we shared a little bit about the seven churches from the book of Revelation and spoke a little bit more in depth about the church of Ephesus. We had a chance to go over what each of the seven churches represented and reflected upon our faith and where we stood according to each church and further realized what we should seek repentance for. Today I want to share this time with you to think about the second and third church, the Church of Smyrna and the Church of Pergamum. Let's first read together the letter written to the Church of Smyrna given to us in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The Church of Smyrna is one of the two churches that do not receive any rebuke but only compliments from Jesus, the other church being the Church of Philadelphia. How should we live in order to stand in front of Jesus on Judgment Day and only hear compliments instead of rebukes? Perhaps we might be able to learn from the Church of Smyrna in Philadelphia. Also looking at the churches that have been rebuked, we can see what sin was the cause of the rebuke and how we can avoid sinning in the same way. What was the Church of Smyrna like? Let's share more about it after our first song.
1: Here is love, vast as the ocean, love and kindness as the flood. When the Prince of Life our ransom shed for us His precious blood, his precious blood. Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the Prince of Life our Precious blood. No love is higher, no love is wider, no love is like your love alone. No love is higher, no love is wider, no love is deeper, no love is true, no love is
2: higher, no love
1: The ocean, higher, wider, deeper. This here is love, vast as the ocean. Mm -hmm. Here is love, vast as the ocean. This here is love, vast as the ocean.
0: Smyrna has many different meanings such as mirror, preservation, and patience. There was hardship and poverty within this church. Hardship, with the original meaning of syripsis, means to be pressured by being forced into a small tight space and not being able to move, or being placed into a situation where you cannot escape, or being pressed under something very heavy. This is referring to all the external pressures and persecutions they face for believing in Jesus Christ. A theologian named Rod Johnson teaches that the poverty they were facing were sanctions and hostility because they were refusing to worship the kings. In other words, the Church of Smyrna faced all kinds of persecution and hardships due to their belief in Jesus Christ and this led to poverty. What are people like today? Are we ready to face hardships and poverty for Christ? Do I still have the faith to follow Christ even if I have to face hardships and financial poverty for my belief in Him? Or on the other hand, are there any of us out there who believe in Jesus Christ to have a better life here on this land and to be more prosperous? Jesus does not tell the church of Smyrna that He will save it immediately from the persecutions and hardships. Instead, Jesus says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer, and informs them of what hardships will soon come and says, Be faithful unto death. Have you ever wondered maybe why life is so hard even after believing in Christ? Or have you wondered why it is only getting harder? The answer is simple. This is because we are not people of this world. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. These are the words of John chapter 15, verse 19. To the church of Smyrna regarding their sufferings and hardships, Jesus says, But you are rich. What did he mean by this? He said this because they were of the people of heaven. They already received eternal life and received the crown of life. Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To the church of Pergamum, the third church, Jesus talks through an angel. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. These are the words of Revelation chapter 2 verse 13 through 17. To the church of Pergamum who received great compliments from the faithful Antipas of Pergamum who died without abandoning his faith for Christ, Jesus rebukes him on two points. First, for holding the teachings of Balaam, and secondly, for holding the teachings of the Nicolaitans. As we all know from Numbers chapter 22, Balaam was a diviner, in other words, a prophet. Through Balak, the king of Moab, tried to curse Israel four times but failed. And instead, God blessed the land with his lips. Eventually, Balaam teaches Balak sorcery and sins throughout the land of Israel by worshipping other gods and by committing adultery. The sorcerers of Balaam had all the people of God commit adultery with their bodies and spirits. Balaam's teachings were to worship gods of other religions and to unify with them. The second group was the Nicolaitans. Of the seven churches, the first church, the church of Ephesus, was rewarded by Jesus for hating the acts of the Nicolaitans. However, the church of Pergamum was rebuked as there were some within the church that held those teachings. There are no specific explanations about the Nicolaitans written in the Bible so we are left with only the opinions of scholars. One thing we know is that Jesus speaks of the people who held the teachings of Balaam and continues to speak about the ones who held the teachings of the Nicolaitans, meaning that the teachings of both were similar. The simple teachings were to accept other religions and to act according to their spiritual ways. Jesus tells his church to repent. If not, he tells them he will come to them and war against them with the sword of his mouth. He tells to the one who conquers, He will give them some of the hidden manna and also a white stone. In ancient times, there were two instances in which you received a white stone. The first was when you were found innocent during a trial, you would receive a white stone for release. Second, a white stone was received to enter any private meeting. There might have been a disadvantage for the ones who repented and were free of spiritual adultery over the others that did not repent. However, Jesus tells them he will give some of the hidden manna so that they may live. Also for those who repent, Jesus gives them a white stone signifying they are innocent so that they may enter the feast in heaven that only invited people can enter into.
1: What? Wow.
2: Always stand before the throne.
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Francis Chan of Cornerstone Church. Today's topic is, What God Can Do Through Ordinary People, Part 2, based on Revelation chapter 11, verse 1-19. through 19. I hope you have a blessed time as you join Pastor Francis. Verse
3: 7 Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Okay, this is Satan. Satan comes out of the abyss and he actually kills God's two witnesses. Now, how does the world respond? Verse 8. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city. That's Jerusalem which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Okay, what is... uh? What's going on here? These two guys are dead now, but no one buries them. They leave them on the streets. Why? Because they want to show the whole world. They want the whole world to see that God's witnesses are dead or who claim to be God's witnesses. The whole point of this idea that, you know what, look, it's over with. The only witnesses that God had on the earth, they're dead. He wasn't the all-powerful God that everyone spoke about. Because, look, his witnesses are dead now. Now, it says that everyone in the world is going to be gloating over them and looking at these bodies and celebrating. Let me ask you something. If this happened a hundred years ago, could everyone in the world see the dead bodies? If it happened today, could everyone in the world see the dead bodies? You know, people from every language, there's this whole idea, and I'm not saying anything other than, you know, it's just some interesting stuff, because when you you read some of the end-time events, it talks about how the whole world gets to see certain things. You know, this isn't the only situation. Now, what happens is these people are all gloating. I mean, the reason why they don't bury them, because that's a pretty inhumane thing to do in our day and age, isn't it? To leave bodies out in the middle of this populated city. But the whole point is so that everyone can come and see and gloat over them. Because you can imagine probably a lot of people are going to come and, and they'll want to see this thing. And with our transportation, they can they can fly over there and look at it and see these dead bodies on the street. Now, it also says that, uh, what else do they do other than gloating over them? It says they'll celebrate by sending each other gifts. Think about that. You guys, what's the only time of the year when everyone gets together and passes out gifts? Christmas. What do we celebrate on Christmas? The birth of Christ. And what has the world been trying to do, especially in the last five to ten years? Have you noticed that? How Christmas, you can't even say Christmas anymore. It's wrong to say Christmas. You got to say happy holidays. The world's trying to get rid of Christmas. And here's the ultimate. Is, well, let's celebrate. Now is the time to pass out gifts. Because why? Christianity is finally dead. It's finally over with. It's hopeless. So now let's pass gifts out the one celebration where we used to send gifts to each other in honor of Jesus Christ. You know, they say, you know what, this is the day where we send gifts out because Christ has been conquered once and for all. His last two witnesses are over. There is no power. Evil reigns. The Antichrist. He's our, He's the one we follow. Pretty hopeless situation. Can you imagine what it would feel like? I mean, if you had some sort of hope in God through these two witnesses, now they're dead. You realize, okay, maybe... God wasn't all he said he was going to be. Maybe he isn't all powerful. Looks pretty hopeless until you get to the next verse. Verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. There's an understatement. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. See how quickly things change? One second, they're celebrating, they are mocking God. I mean, they're trying to picture this. Imagine you are there, one of the unbelievers, that's looking at the dead bodies, you're celebrating, you're passing out fruitcake, you know, you're passing out gifts to everyone, it's like, hey, they're dead, they're dead, celebrate, you know, and everyone is looking at these dead bodies, I mean, can you imagine what a fiasco it's going to be, it's roped off and there's security, but everyone's looking on, just celebrating, cheering, just so excited that these two, we killed them, we are all-powerful. You know, we're the human race. We killed them. It's, it's over with. We have shown there there's no God. We have killed his witnesses. They're celebrating. They're, 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 they're sending gifts. And then suddenly as they're looking and they're cheering, the two bodies come to life. What would that feel like? The very people you are mocking stand up. Unless you think it's some sort of trick. hear a voice from heaven say come up here and you see these bodies start to rise not only that as they're rising in the air an earthquake hits buildings are collapsing all around you thousands of people are dying at that moment everyone else who was alive in that area goes okay we were wrong And what do they do? It says they were terrified and they gave glory to the God of heaven. At that moment, they finally come to a point where they say, enough. Remember all through the book of Revelation how it says the people still wouldn't repent? They still wouldn't give glory to God. They just got more and more rebellious at the very last moment. Those who are still alive at this point, we don't know how many are left, but they finally go, okay, I give all glory to the God of heaven. That term, understand, the term the God of heaven was the term that was used in the Old Testament that would distinguish God, Yahweh God, from all other gods, from all other religions. It was saying these people finally at the end say we believe in the one true God now. We believe in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in Him. That is the God they are giving glory to. The true God. As these two witnesses are taken up into heaven. And as they're taken up into heaven, they show the scene in heaven. In verse, verse 14, it says, The second woe has passed. The third is coming soon. That's talking about the sixth trumpet is gone. And now in verse 15, it says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. Remember, there were seven angels. This is the last one. Sounds his trumpet, the last trumpet. And it says, And there were loud voices in heaven which said... The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Can you imagine that? You know, after you see them rise, then suddenly you hear this heavenly host, you hear these loud voices from heaven screaming out, this world that has been under the rule of these people is now under the rule of Jesus Christ himself. You get to hear that. And then it says in the, in the next verse, in verse 16, it says, the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God, we've talked about them, they fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. It's now the 24 elders saying, this is it. God, you are beginning to reign now and you're going to reign forever in the time of your wrath. I mean, by then they've already seen a lot of God's wrath. But now he says the ultimate time of God's wrath, the judgment day. See, because he says in the next verse, verse 18, The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints. And those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. He's saying it's judgment day. It's time to judge those who've been mocking you. It's also time to judge those and actually to reward those who reverenced you, who feared you. Let me ask you something. If today were judgment day, I mean, can you imagine? You heard those voices from heaven. The trumpet blows. The voices say, this is it. Time for judgment. Judgment. If that were today, if that were right now, how would you feel? What would go through your mind right now if you heard a voice from heaven say that time has come? It's time to judge. It's time to reward. What would go through your mind right now? It's the same things that you've been thinking about this week? I mean, think about it. What, what, what occupied your mind this week? What are the things you worried about, you were consumed with, you were striving after? Think about things you were striving after this week and consumed with. Will any of that matter on Judgment Day? I hope you've been focused on things that will matter in the end. But I'm willing to bet that a lot of you say, no, the things I worried about this week, have, in the end, they just won't even matter. Yes, don't you see that's exactly what Satan wants you to do? is fill your days with things that don't matter. In the end, strive after possessions and positions and things that on Judgment Day you're going to care less about. Because this, this book is supposed to encourage us to live in such a way as, as we look forward to this judgment and do things that we'll actually care about on that day. Just understand, no matter how tainted the world gets, God is still on His throne. Okay, Judgment Day is still coming. And you guys know that. In fact, the Holy Spirit was sent into the world to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I believe everyone in the world knows deep down inside that a judgment day is coming. Whether you deny it or not, the Holy Spirit has revealed that to you. That's what He was sent on the earth to do, to convict you of judgment. Are you ready for that? Because God is on His throne. And the world's going to try to tell you that no, he's not. He's not watching. There's no God. And it's going to get more and more like that. But God says, despite what happens on this earth, I'm telling you it's going to get worse, but I'll still be on my throne in heaven. In fact, that's what he says in the very last verse. And look at verse 19. This is this is very important. It says, God's, then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. See, you're going to be able to see in heaven that God's temple, even though the earthly temple was being desecrated, God's temple in heaven was still there. Even though the ark may not be in this earthly temple, God says, look up at the one in heaven. The ark is still there. Everything's under control. Okay? No matter how chaotic it gets on the earth, God says, my kingdom has always been. It's not of this world. Everything is okay up here. You guys, do you believe that right now? Do you believe that God is all-powerful? And that in the end, he's going to show his power, but he's going to let it get worse before it gets better. You see, when we're talking about God, if you're a Christian, the word hopeless should be out of your vocabulary. You know, and just talking about things of God, you have no idea what God can do. Some of you come here today and you say, you know what, my my marriage is hopeless, I guarantee you I can show you a marriage that was in worse shape than yours, that is restored now because the people put faith in God. Some of you, some of you look at your kids and you say, you know what? It's hopeless. They'll never walk with God. Guys, I guarantee you I can find people who were further away from God, who did things twice as bad and yet they're walking with the Lord today and some of those people are in this very room. And God took them to a point of hopelessness just so that he can show his power. And you guys, here, here's the two witnesses are, dead, lying in the streets. What seems like a hopeless situation, and that's, that's when God just thrives. That, those are the situations that you just see God in the Bible over and over again, just showing off his power. And you guys, maybe that's what God has called you to do, is to get on your knees and say, God, show me your power now, because I think I'm hopeless enough. I think the situation has gotten so bad that only you can salvage it. And I believe that you can. I'm not saying that he he does everything you want him to do. I've just seen it in so many people's lives where God has taken us to a point where we thought, there's no way God can make anything of my life. And yet those are the very people he uses to show his power. you pray with me? Father, I thank you. And I believe that you are an almighty God. And Father, you could cause me to rise up in the air and be taken to heaven right now. You can do anything you want. You are the Almighty God. And God, though this world does not believe in you, we do. And we have come here today to worship you. And though this world will not honor you, we will honor you and declare that this is your world. It belongs to you and you will reclaim it one day. And so we worship you now. And God, as uh, we give to you of our gifts, God, we recognize that all of our possessions are really not our possessions. They are your possessions that you have entrusted to us. Because this whole world belongs to You. Everything in our pockets belongs to You. The homes we live in belong to You. And so, God, as we give to You, we're only giving back what belongs to You. And I just pray that You're honored by it. God, You're an awesome God. And I pray that You are truly honored as we sing to You and as we give to You. In Jesus' name.
0: Find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Please stay tuned as we are following a program titled Christian Ethics that guides us to know what ethical standards we as Christians should hold.
4: Hello, listeners. This is Brian Winston with Christian Ethics. Do you know your height? What about your weight? Most of you would be able to answer these questions quite easily. You should know your age as well. So, why am I asking these questions? Before we can answer how tall, how heavy, or how old we are, we need standards. We need to first understand inches or centimeters in order to know our height. Similarly, We age every year, which comprises of months, days, and even seconds. We need standards in order to calculate our basic metrics. Then what would be the standard for right and wrong? This question is the very basis of morality. Morality or ethics is defined as a particular system of values and principles of conduct, especially one held by a specified person or society. Yet, the standard of morality sometimes differs or changes from one society to another, from time to time, and from region to region. This characteristic of morality forces us to consider the following questions. Is there an absolute standard of right and wrong? Can we ever conclude that something is always right or always wrong? Is it more difficult to live morally today than it was a century ago? Do different cultures define right and wrong differently? What do you think? Have you ever faced or thought about these questions? In order for us to make a judgment, we need an unchanging standard. God is absolute, his character never changes. Therefore, God's moral characteristics, such as love, truth, holiness, mercy, grace, righteousness, etc., are also absolute. These characteristics are suggested in the Bible. Through two prophecies, meaning that God reveals a truth that human beings could never figure out by themselves. Because human beings, the creation, can never comprehend God, the Creator, God Himself, lets us know who He is through prophecy. The first prophecy is the Bible. The Bible declares God's characteristics. The second prophecy is through nature. Nature reveals and verifies the Bible. These two prophecies allow human beings to judge what is right and wrong. Romans 1.20 declares, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood, through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Philosophers call the sense of right and wrong the moral law. This moral law changed C.S. Lewis, a former atheist, to convert to Christianity, confessing human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to believe in a certain way and can't really get rid of it. His quote suggests that people have a certain standard for morality, even without being taught. This standard is not man-made, but is given, and therefore, people can't get rid of it. It is true that people know what is right and what is wrong almost instinctively. As soon as children learn how to speak, they also learn to lie and to hide it. Even though no one has ever taught them, children already know that it is wrong to lie. In order to be able to tell right from wrong, a person must transcend its own humanity, or there must be a standard completely separate from humanity. This leads us to conclude that since it is impossible for a human being to transcend its own humanity, there must have been a separate being that set the standard for morality. Without a lawmaker, law cannot exist. All these evidences suggest that there is an absolute moral law and it's our Maker, our God. While it was clear that there is an absolute moral law for humanity, Some scientists found it difficult to accept that God is the lawmaker. So they claim that there is a specific set of genes that determines human behaviors. They tried to assert that the moral law is similar to animal instinct. However, we all know the two are totally different. Instinct that leads birds to the south during winter and to the north during the summer dominates the animal behavior automatically and consistently. However. Even though people can tell what is right and what is wrong, they do not always follow the answer. In fact, many choose to do the opposite even when they know it's wrong. This shows how instinct itself and instinctive awareness are two very different things and there must be a superior being who has planted the sense of right and wrong for us to be aware of it. So many people in the world try to find an excuse or explanation to deny the existence of God. Nonetheless, it is simply impossible to explain what God has done without acknowledging that God exists. It is as if trying to prove that a high-tech vehicle was made and assembled without the designer. Although it sounds absurd, so many people still invest their time and energy to accomplish something that is impossible. Let's come back to the nature of morality. The absolute moral law that determines what is absolutely right and what is absolutely wrong comes from the perfect nature of God. The standard comes from the unchanging God and His words. In Christian ethics, we will study various cultures and moral issues of today's world based on God's perfect perspective and truths. I hope that this program will raise awareness among Christians to live out the righteousness of God. I hope that by doing so, our deeds will reveal Jesus Christ, the one true light of the world. This concludes today's episode. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
5: Give me grace for every try
0: different interpretations regarding the book of Revelation depending on the scholar who is interpreting the passage. The explanation may be different regarding the hidden manna, the white stone, or the new name, but what is important was that Jesus wanted the church of Pergamum to repent of their sinful acts to stop worshipping other gods and stop their acts of spiritual adultery. There are many acts of spiritual adultery and many gods within the churches today. Next week during this time, we will share more about the acts of spiritual adultery that are happening today. I hope that this week we may all open our ears and listen carefully to the Holy Spirit and be rich like the Church of Smyrna and come forth in repentance like the Church of Pergamum as we will now wrap up unity in Christ. Thank you for listening as it has been my pleasure and I hope to see you this time next week. And God bless.
6: There's nothing worth more That could ever come close No thing can compare You're our living hope Your presence, Lord I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of us Where my heart becomes free And my shame is undone Your presence, Lord